good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Let's turn tonight again in the Word of God to 2 Kings chapter 6. <clears throat> 2 Kings chapter 6, we're going to read together from the verse uh, number 8. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him, and warned him off, and saved himself there, not once nor twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. And he called his servants, and said unto them, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. And he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servants said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. And it came to pass, when they were come into Samaria, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men, that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And the king of Israel said unto Elisha, when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? And he answered, Thou shalt not smite them. And wouldst thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with thy sword and with thy bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink, and go to their master. And he prepared great provision for them. And when they'd eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And so the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. Right on the heels of the axe-head swimming, we are presented uh, with another remarkable account in the life of Elisha. Keep in mind that in these chapters we are seeing repeatedly the theme that God is preserving his people for the honor of his name. There is a small but a faithful remnant that are living in apostate days. And the Lord is pleased to preserve his remnant. 
The Lord is pleased to care for his people. The story, I say, is indeed a remarkable account. There are attacks from marauding bands from Syria. You have there, verse 8, then the king of Syria warred against Israel. I say these are marauding bands because you have there in the verse number 23, so the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. I think it's important to see that because when you get to verse number 24, you then find that the whole host of the Syrian army come and encamp against Samaria. So at the time in our story, there are these bands that are coming and assaulting the people of God and the Lord is thwarting, thwarting their evil plans. Time and time again, we have there in the verse 10, not once or twice, a few times, the Lord has intervened in a miraculous fashion. God somehow has revealed to Elisha the plots and the plans of the king of Syria. Elisha in turn passes that information on to the king of Israel and the king of Israel escapes the advance of these evil bands. Thus the king of Syria, verse 11, becomes incredibly suspicious that there must be a traitor in the camp. And that's what he's asking in verse 11. Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? Who is the deceiver in the midst? Who is the one who is passing on secret information from the very bedchamber of the king? Who's passing it to the king of Israel? And they say, and again, we're not told how, uh, the people respond in verse number 12, Elisha the prophet, it's his fault. And thus the king says, well, we'll go out and get him. That's the essence of verse number 13. Go, spy where he is, and I will send and fetch him. There is some humor in the account. For some reason, they presume that Elisha will not know they're coming to get him. All along, he's been able to tell them what's going to happen, where the king is going to be. Uh, but now they're going to say, well, we'll, we'll just go and get him. And they do it in a very grand scale. They send hither horses and chariots and a great host. And the sense of that word host is a, a great force uh, to catch a humble prophet. We are meant to see uh, this sense of, of humor. Elisha then responds very calmly to the whole situation. And we know that because... The servant of God panics when he sees the host. Verse 15, the servant of the man of God rises early. He sees the host compassing the city, all the horses and chariots. And he says, what are we going to do? Or in the authorized version, how shall we do? Elisha says, don't fear, but see. Again, note the contrast here. The poor servant, he sees and fears. Elisha says, don't fear, but see. What happens then is Elisha does a lot of praying. Verse 17, he prays, first of all, for the servant. Now, the servant would see what he needs to see. He needs to see the ways of God. He then prays in verse number 18 that the people would be smitten with blindness. This word blindness is interesting uh, just in terms of the, the use of a word in, in our Bibles. It's only used in one other place, and it's used in refer reference to the, the men of Sodom. And when they come to the door of Lot, uh, and the Lord smites them with blindness, it's the only two places this word is used. 
It seems to speak of delusions or distortion of, of sight. Not so much that they were rendered incapable of seeing, but that God miraculously distorted their sight. They're able to go this journey, this journey of 10 miles to Samaria. They can do that journey, but yet they cannot see. There's a distortion in their sight. It's a miraculous intervention on the part of God. They are there led by Elisha to Samaria. Because Elisha is going to be there. Now verse 19, we're not going to sit on it very long, but it's one that caused some troubles to the uh, biblical ethicist. What is Elisha doing here? Now, this is not the way. Neither is this a city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. Is he telling a lie? Uh, it's one of these situations we have in the Bible where you have situations like Rahab the harlot and her actions at that point. Uh, this is another uh, such event. Some answer will say that, no, the man, he's going to lead them to the king. Others will suggest, well, he is going to be in Samaria. This is not the place yet, but it will be the place when he gets to Samaria uh, in time for the army to arrive there. Or others simply say that there is a place in war for a ruse de guard, a, a ruse of war. That is a, a valid means of warfare in such a time. All of these different things are explained or used to explain this particular text. Whatever the case may be, Elisha leads him to Samaria. And lo and behold, I love this, verse number 20, and the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold. It's just wonderful to, to think of the event here. They've been led for 10 miles. They open their eyes and go, oh, we're in Samaria. Children, you're meant to read this and go, this is very amusing. It's meant to be amusing. God is keeping these people in his sovereign will. And he's leading them by the hand of a prophet 10 miles and they open their eyes and go, how did we end up in Samaria of all places? The king of Israel, he has a bloodbath on his mind. He's going to slay them all. Verse 21, my father, shall I smite them? And the repetition here gives the idea of, can I, can I, can I smite them? Shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? That's the idea. He's eager to go about his work of smiting the Syrians. Why the king of Israel has a bloodbath on mind, the king of heaven is planning a banquet. And thus they eat and they leave. And when they'd eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. God achieves his purpose in his own way. It's an interesting story. I've given you a very quick overview of it, but I want to sit and think about some of the lessons we can learn. And as we think of the lessons, I couldn't help but note that sight plays a great part in this story. There are things that we should see. And very quickly, we should see the invisible hand of God's. And we should see that. Think of the opening events. We're not told how Elisha knew what he knew regarding the king of Syria. We're just told he knows. We're not told how that comes to pass. We're not told how the Syrians knew that Elisha knew. We're not told that in this story. And the point of it all is, none of this fits into any human explanation. There's no way to explain this. In any way apart from the invisible, sovereign hand of God. This is another example in the Word of God, of God's invisible hand. It's like the hand of God we read of in Esther. God not mentioned there, but in all the affairs, we see the hand of God moving in human history. 
And so we see it here. It's another example where we're just seeing God at work in miraculous, mysterious ways for his glory. This hand is sovereign in scope. Nothing is outside the sovereign hand of God. Nothing escapes God's sovereign control. No king, no nation, no molecule, no atom is outside the sovereign hand of God. Proverbs 21, of course, says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. You're seeing that here. The king of Syria, he's in the hand of God. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. God's hand is sovereign in scope. It's sovereign in strength. To use Nebuchadnezzar's confession, none can stay his hand. Or say unto him, what doest thou? The strongest king in the world cannot resist the power of God. I'm sure you're noticing today the, the strength of Putin. Great power, great authority in his own nation. We think of the strength of Donald Trump or the president here. We think of the strength of other leaders. No king is stronger than the mighty power of God. Not one. No matter what they may stand for by way of their morality and by way of their understanding of, of rule, they are not stronger than God. Nations rise and fall. God's kingdom, of course, is the everlasting kingdom. It's always important to stop and think of these things. It's a, it's a repeating theme when you read the Old Testament stories. that The mighty kings are in the hand of God. It's no less true today. We don't believe it sometimes, but it's no less true today. Our unbelief is a problem, not God's power. God is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are judgment, a God of truth. And without iniquity, just and right is he. Sovereign in scope, sovereign in strength, sovereign in season. His hand works in his own good pleasure at his own time. At this point, God is pleased to frustrate the Syrians. The people deserve judgment. They deserve chastisement. But at this point, God stays the hand of the Syrians. But later on, the people of God will be punished. 100 years plus, they will find themselves under the thumb of the Assyrians. And they will find themselves in captivity. But for now, God is exercising his just patience and his kindness towards the people. God does what he pleases when he pleases. Sovereign in scope, in strength, and season, and sovereign with regards to the subjects. The reason for the frustration of the Syrian king, and undoubtedly this is a frustrating time for the king of Syria, the reason is not likely due to the virtue of the king of Israel. There are no virtuous kings at this time. And thus the only reason God is pleased to thwart the Syrian king is for the glory of his name in the good of his remnant. I want you to turn to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, there is a, a precious text that I would, I would encourage you to mark and to, to, to store in your mind when you live in a fallen and a wicked world. You see, we understand that in the ways of God, God would be pleased to spare Sodom for ten righteous souls. God is pleased to show mercy for the sake of a remnant. And in Ezra chapter 8 and the verse number 22, it says, look at the end of the verse. It's the second half of the verse, really. The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. 
but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. There's a principle to hold dear in the Word of God, that we who seek the Lord, the hand of God is good toward us. It's an Old Testament, Romans 8, 28. God is working things for good for those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. The Bible is a book of conflict. From Genesis 3, 15, all the way through, we find this repeating theme of conflict, that the evil come against the people of God, but yet the God of heaven is the God who steps in and intervenes. He is the God who will crush the head of the serpent. And every time you see God's victories in the Old Testament, you're getting a little glimpse, a little insight into the hand of God that will crush his enemies. The sovereign hand of God. We're to see that in this account. But the second thing to note that I want you to see is I want you to see, along with this servant, I want you to see the invisible army of God. There's an army in view here. Let me say something that might be provocative, but perhaps it might stick. Angels aren't just for Catholics and charismatics. They, they delight in them. You know, the Roman Catholic delight in, in, in angels and all of that imagery in their churches. And the charismatic delight all manner of spirituality. And so they will write and read and preach about angels. And sometimes we mention angels and we think to ourselves, oh, are we going down dangerous territory? Are we going to head into some sort of mystical unknown? And I tell you, no, you're not. Great danger awaits the Lord's servant here. Verse 14, the king sends horses and chariots and a great host. This is a time of great danger for the man of God and for the furtherance of the word of God preached by the man of God. And thus I think the servant, he behaves as we do. You can again, you just imagine the scene. We don't need to put much color in this. He wakes up, he rubs his eyes, he opens the door and he quickly closes the door. That's what's going to happen here. He's opened the door to, and maybe looks a couple of times. Look what's out there. And there's great fear that captures his heart. And Elisha prays, open his eyes that he may see. That he may see what he could not see when he first looked out the door in that morning. A heavenly army, horses and chariots. And I believe this is a reference to the angelic host. Got to prove that though, accept that, got to prove that now. So turn please to Psalm 68. I'm going to turn you very quickly to a number of references. What is the identity of this company of horses and chariots? Well, Psalm 68 in the verse number 17 says this the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. There's a reference. To the chariots of God, being the thousands of angels. In a similar fashion, Psalm 104, and the verse number 4. Who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire. And then of course, back in Second uh, Kings chapter 2, you have the account of the chariots of God as Elisha is taken up to heaven in the whirlwind. It's a reference to fire. And you turn also, also please to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66 in the verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind 
to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. And I think that ties in with the words of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So all of the various references, you, you pull them all together, you get a sight that this man was to see the angelic company surrounding and protecting Elisha, ready for war if need be. Now this is a heavenly army. You think of Christ in the garden. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than Twelve legions of angels. Now we know that Christ goes all the way to the cross. He doesn't, he doesn't call for the heavenly army. But it was there. There was a heavenly army there waiting on Christ's summons. No, they weren't summonsed, but they were there. And of course, we know the, the plot of the evil one, the devil in uh, the temptation. He quotes Psalm 91, For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Now I understand. The temptation shows that's a reference to Christ, the ultimate man of God. But there is clear application to every man of God. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The whole Psalm 91 is about our security. And in that context, he shall give his angels charge over thee. John Gill, the Reformed commentator, who is, uh, I think we'd all agree, is not given to excesses, would say this. These are created spirits, so-called made by the Lord, and are his command, who are ministering spirits to his people, who encamp about them, and are concerned in the preservation of them, they being committed to their care, and charged by him who is Lord of heaven and earth. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Even the New Testament book of Acts, but the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth. Acts 5, Acts 12, there's an angel who opens a door for the people of God. I'm not making these things up. Ladies, you're asked to wear a head covering in public worship. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us, For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. What does it mean? Nobody's entirely sure. But at least it means there are angels and they have an association with the church. And in some interaction, ladies, by your wearing a head covering, you bear testimony to the angels. Perhaps they're present. I think that's likely the case. Now, there is an angelic host present when the people of God worship. Of course, Hebrews 1 is the defining text regarding the angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? In no less a place than your deathbed, it is the angels who carried Lazarus to Abraham's bosom. There is an angelic company that is pleased to minister to the good for the protection of the people of God. So what am I encouraging you to see? Oh, the servant of God was encouraged to see the chariots and the horses that God had sent. The text says, The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Now my desire is not that you would trust in angels, 
but that you trust in the God who sends angels. We can exercise hospitality and so entertain angels unawares. There's a multiplicity of texts. It just encourages us again that our safety is in the hand of God. Psalm 55 and the verse 18. He hath delivered my soul in peace from the battle that was against me. For there were many with me. At least there's a hint towards what's happening here in the event of Elisha. That there are more that be with us than be with them. That's a matter of faith, isn't it? We may not always see. Indeed, we don't see how God protects our persons, but he does. He preserves our going out and our coming in. And so we must see by faith what is unseen. And we ought to delight in the security that God affords for us, even through ministering angels. John Brown, the Scottish divine, I think alongside Gil, not given to excess, he says this, how useful they are to the saints in suggesting good thoughts, in restraining Satan, in averting danger, and in assisting and providing for them, we can hardly conceive. We don't appreciate how God ministers to us through his angelic host. So let's repent of our unbelief and trust in God, who is pleased to minister to our aid supernaturally, even though we do not see his supernatural work. When you put these two things together, the invisible hand of God and the invisible army of God, it is surely an encouragement that we would rest in security. I love Bunyan's picture in the holy war of man's soul. Picturing the individual believer under assault, under attack, through these various gates. But there's a picture of war. But God is protecting man's soul. And God is pleased to preserve man's soul from the assaults of the enemy. And though your body may face the consequence of various assaults from the evil one, your soul is safe. And nothing will get beyond the heavenly host that encamps around about you. Do not live in fear. And though you may feel under assault by trouble and trial and temptations, God is keeping your soul. And he will keep your soul from all evil. And so the task must be at times to wake up in the morning. Lord, cause me to see. Cause me to see that those who are with me are more than those who are against me. This is the word of God. And we must apply it to our souls. That we rest in security and that we resolve to serve God. For the church is in God's hand. And no matter the enemy, the church of Christ is safe in the hand of God. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170. Or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.